Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here today as we think about you know, getting people together who believe that it's worthwhile to, 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 to try to think about what's the right treatment, what's the best treatment that we can offer a given patient in a given situation. How do we memorialize that? How do we disseminate that across broader populations of users? Um, and so I, it's my pleasure to be here, and I want to talk about how we think about pathways at Dana-Farber and to really try to pull back the curtain on how we make decisions. Some of you may have been in it, um, our breakfast session as we talked about our new collaboration with Philips Healthcare as we've built a new um, Pathways platform that we're very excited about. And for this session, I thought, you know, I want to focus on content and talk about what our meetings look like, how we come to decisions. And so this is me. In terms of my conflicts of interest, I'm a consultant for Philips and for More Health, which is a telemedicine corporation. You'll notice that I specifically do not have any um, conflicts with pharma, and that's by design at this point. In terms of um, our discussion aims and learning objectives, we want to describe considerations that can aim in therapy selection when there are multiple agents in the same therapeutic class from which to choose. I want to talk about integrating efficacy and safety data, indications and cost utility of novel therapies into optimal selections and non-small cell lung cancer pathway placement strategies. And I want to summarize the role of genetic mutations and patient-specific biomarkers in therapeutic selection and pathway design for non-small cell lung cancer. In fact, really wanting to broaden this to all of lung cancer. Healthcare is hard. You know, life is hard, and healthcare and oncology care is especially hard. You know, this is a reminder of that. This is the placard that that uh, President Kennedy used to keep on his desk in the Oval Office. My sea is so great, and my boat is so small. Reminded by more recent presidents about how difficult healthcare is. <laughs> and so, with that. You know, as we think about lung cancer pathways, yes, that care is getting so much more complex and so quickly. When I think back to 2004, this was, this was what was available in terms of targeted therapy across cancer. And, and, and frankly, you know, it was harder to remember and figure out what the right ribbon was for each cancer than it was to figure out the targeted therapies that were available because there were only a few. Um, and, and this has changed so dramatically. If we focus just on lung cancer, um, we think about... Um, within non-small cell lung cancer, you know, now, now, you know, recognizing that it's not enough to just say lung cancer. We care about, you know, who needs to be uh, tested for genomic mutations. You know, so now we think about, well, it's stage four patients, and we think about doing these tests in, in non-squamous patients or squamous non-smokers or trying to figure out exactly who should be tested for each various mutation. Um, it's, and even within one specific mutation for EGFR, it's not just EGFR positive. We care about the specific genotype. And we also care about, gosh, how did you go about getting the testing? Um, should this be tissue, either through sequencing or through RT-PCR or through a next-generation sequencing platform? Or are you doing this by plasma with digital droplet PCR? And all of that matters in, in how we go forward with decision-making. And then which drug do you use? Well, it's not just one drug anymore. It's, well, there's Jafitinib or Lotinib or Fatinib dacamitinib, osimertinib, and do you give this alone or do you give it with chemo or with a VEGF inhibitor? So even this one specific decision has become so much more complex. Not only that, but the pace of change has been driven so much more quickly that we get new drugs and new standards, gosh, seems like every month at this point. And as alluded to in the earlier slide, there's new methods for, for testing for these various genomic biomarkers. 
Furthermore, is, you know, when do you get the testing? Is it just at diagnosis? Is it some later point in lung cancer? If you were on an EGFR inhibitor and you progress, then we think about rebiopsying to try to understand the mechanism of progression and to, to, in order to inform both standard and clinical trial options thereafter. As a great example of the pace of change in non-small cell lung cancer, my goodness, look at how many drugs have been approved just in the last few years. And so we're incredibly proud, both at Dana-Farber as well as the lung cancer community as a whole, of the, the extent of research that have driven this, the fact that 15 drugs have been approved in non-small cell lung cancer since 2015, which is more than all of the number of drugs that have been approved in lung cancer for the entirety of the FDA's existence leading up to that point. So where do pathways fit? You know, I think that pathways can play a number of important roles in this space. It can help to drive testing. Who should be tested? When should they be tested? What's the best mechanism for such testing? And then how do you interpret those results? I want to talk then about, once you have those results, which treatment, why you use one treatment over another, and how long do you use it for? And then as alluded to earlier, with progression, is this an appropriate time to get a rebiopsy? Will that meaningfully drive care, either in terms of standard care options or in terms of potential clinical trials? And is there enough there to justify putting a patient through another biopsy or getting you know, plasma-based testing, but the potential cost of that testing? When we think about pathways more broadly, Yes, understanding that content about what tests to do, what drugs to do, how long to use them, what to do with progression, is part of how we evaluate what's the best foot we can put forward in care for the patient in front of me. But that's not the only thing that we do, and it should not be the only thing we think about doing. We need to think about how we disseminate that information. Do we do this through a pathways-based platform um, on, on, you know, that's web-based or cloud-based? And, and furthermore, what's in that platform to help to educate users about the decision they're making? Do we have citations in there? Do we have justification? And, and furthermore, beyond the internet, what about, you know, do we publish minutes? How transparent can we be about who made these decisions, how did they come to this, these decisions, and here's what they were. Wanting to capture all the data of everything that we've done as users. Wow, in this situation, I use this drug how often? And what happened? How do we capture that information? And how do we feed it back to providers, to institutions, and to systems in a meaningful way to allow them to learn from that? And then with all of this, in a Pathways platform, I think that supporting the research mission is critical. And so we want to think about using the Pathways platform to be able to explore clinical trials. And so part of this is being able to put clinical trials into the Pathways platform so that as a user is navigating through, being able to say, oh, look, this is an EGFR patient um, with an exon 19 deletion. And look, my institution has three trials that might be appropriate for this patient. Furthermore, though, beyond clinical trials, how do we use data to think about, first, how do we learn from every patient? Second, in learning from those patients, not just about what we've done, but frankly, just how many patients within this specific niche do we see? Gosh, if we're looking at breast cancer and looking specifically at HER2-positive, um, ERPR-negative patients um, in the neoadjuvant setting, 
How many patients did my organization see of that type in the last three months? Because that can be useful as we think about our clinical trial portfolio. Do we have any trials in that space? And do we have enough patients in that space to justify opening a trial that would enroll such patients? So I wanted to use two case studies, and, and in these, these are the actual slides that we put in front of our docs in our review meetings. The only difference here is I had to reformat them um, for, for, for the, uh, the template for this conference um, to, so that we can explain, here's what we do, and, and here's some of the things that we take into consideration. Um, I think this is critical. I've sat on a number of committees, whether it's NCCN or other vendors or what have you, and a lot of it is... Yes, experts getting around a table and talking about what, what might be used or not used, but without any data in front of them. And it's really kind of hinging upon their recollection, recollection of the data or their perception of cost as opposed to putting actual numbers in front of them. It's like the Plato's cave of, of data as opposed to putting actual things in front of them. And so I feel really strongly that we should be putting actual data in front of doctors is a reminder of, of what, what it is that's at stake as they think about decision making. And so um, this, these were our existing recommendations for extensive stage small cell lung cancer, first line therapy. Going into, this was literally from Thursday's meeting. We, um, we time our meetings specifically several times a year, but to try to happen after major conferences. We met f with our thoracic cancer group on Thursday because it was purposefully after World Lung and after um, ESMO, both of which happened in Barcelona in, in September. And so here, what you'll notice is coming into this, and this is taken from our actual platform, our top line had been carboplatin and etobicide, though we recognize that carboplatin and etobicide with atezolizumab was also an on-pathway option. We had not felt so strongly about it that it should be absolutely the primary option um, initially on the basis of Leora Horn's paper in the New England Journal um, from a few months earlier. Um, we thought it was worthwhile putting in, but didn't wholeheartedly embrace it, in part because we weren't clear whether the improvements were truly by giving atezolizumab up front versus whether the improvement was really from the maintenance component of the trial. And then you have a number of other things in there, including things like atopicide, because we had run into a situation where... Um, I, I ran a TCAN because we're in a situation where there was a national shortage of atopicide. And so we have these things in there. Why? Gosh, that's a lot of work to do just in case of a rare situation. Yeah, but when it comes up, our doctor, we don't want our doctors scrambling for what's the dosages for cisplatin and rinitecan. So we have it there. In any case, so as we sat in this meeting on Thursday, first I reminded them of the Empower 133 data from Leora Horn, again from New England Journal from 2018. We looked at the, the, the clinical uh, metrics of efficacy. And then we moved on to the Caspian trial, which presented at World Lung earlier in September. And so Luis Pazares presented the Caspian study, which is very similar in design, in that it was a randomized study looking at extensive stage small cell lung cancer that was untreated, and presented the results of either chemotherapy, EP, or um, EP plus Dervalumab with a maintenance Dervalumab thereafter, but with one key, di well, one key difference compared to Empower 133 in that this was not a blinded study. And we, again, looked at the overall survival and progression-free survival and looked at other things. And as you can see here pointing out that this was an open-label trial, which is different than the placebo-controlled Empower 133. Looked at the difference in carboplatin versus cisplatin, um, that all, everybody in Empower had gotten carbo, whereas a quarter of patients in Caspian had gotten cis. 
looked at and compared both efficacy outcomes as well as differences in AEs. There was no significant difference in the total number of grade 3, 4 AEs. There, were, there was differences in the reporting of immune-specific um, immune AEs. Though here, too, I wonder if this is potentially an effect of the fact that this was an open-label trial, so you knew whether your patient was getting the uh, immunotherapy agent or not. And with that, and, and, and then had also a discussion about toxicity, and, and we've, we've had a lot of experience with both of these agents um, specifically and with immunotherapy in general at Dana-Farber and have not yet seen a clear signal of difference in toxicities amongst the agents, either alone or in combination. Um, and so then posed these two questions to them. Should chemo plus IO now be the primary recommendation in this setting? And if so, should chemo plus dervalumab be that recommendation, or should we stick with uh, etoposide carboplatin plus atezolizumab? And, sh and showed costs, and these costs, all of the costs when we calculated are from the most recent ASP pricing file from CMS, and so this was the October version, so as up to date as we could possibly be, and just by ease of convention, assumes a 70 kilogram, 70 uh, inch patient with a creatinine of 1.0, because I'm not very good at math, and so that makes things easier for us. Um, and so with that, what did our, what did our uh, committee decide? Well, so, so we thought that the Caspian trial was an important addition. If nothing else, it provided yet a second um, randomized trial showing that chemo plus an IO resulted in a survival benefit in patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer. And though the magnitude of benefit might not be as great as we want it to be in small cell, we're, we're, we're incredibly excited about the fact that we are seeing a survival benefit. And with two randomized trials now, we felt strongly that, yes, carboplatin etoposide plus an IO should now be our primary recommendation, and we're in the process of making those minutes and making that change. With regards to dervalumab, we did not think, you know, obviously there's no head-to-head -head data. We did not think that Caspian provided enough of a significant difference to show that it was head and shoulders above atezolizumab. Um, given the cost differences, did not think that it was worthwhile to incorporate this as our new standard. And so we're still going forward with etoposide carbolizumab plus atezo. And I'm sure that this will get revisited as other... Um, chemo plus IO studies come to the front. We recognize that chemo plus pembrolizumab is, 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 is still enrolling, and, and we suspect that that data will read out fairly soon. Another case study. This is, I wanted to talk about what do we do in later line in the setting of a shifting landscape. And so I want to talk about ALK, because this is one that has, has shifted a lot over the last few years. You know, that when, when this all began, first-line therapy was with crizotinib. And then a number of second-generation agents came to the fore. Um, seritinib, electinib, and brigatinib all ultimately got approved in the second-line setting. Um, when, we chose, when we went through these, ultimately we settled on electinib as our primary second-line um, agent in that setting, amongst other reasons, not just because of efficacy and good CNS uh, penetration, but because it had the best toxicity profile of the three agents, and there was no significant cost difference amongst the three. Eventually, after Alex and J. Alex trials, electinib becomes the new first-line agent, which then renders seritinib and brigatinib um, virtually inappropriate in a second-line setting. And so there's a void to fill there. And along comes lorlatinib. And in November of 2018, uh, the FDA granted uh, accelerated 
approval to lorlatinib and specifically um, the label read for patients with ALK-positive metastatic non-small cell whose disease had progressed on crizotinib and at least one other ALK inhibitor, or those who had progressed on electinib or seritinib, that is the two second-generation inhibitors that were um, approved uh, by the FDA at that time, as the first ALK inhibitor therapy for metastatic disease. We looked at the different cohorts, you know, that the data that, that had been presented as well um, to the FDA as well as presented publicly were from different trials. Um, the, the first was in patients who were previously untreated. The second were in patients who had received prior crizotinib. And the third um, and fourth uh, groups were in patients who had received a prior second-generation inhibitor either alone or had received multiple um, prior ALK agents. And so... Looking at this data, um, looking at these waterfall plots, looking at all of the specific toxicity data, and, th- and, and, and thinking about our own experience with this and recognizing that, yes, some of the challenges we've seen um, with this agent have been CNS side effects. And then again, posing a question, making sure that we, 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 we summarize the discussion and, and, and try to come to some consensus. Should we add lorlatinib for ALK-positive, non-small cell lung cancer patients who have progressed after a second-generation inhibitor? Noticing what is an exorbitant but sadly fairly you know, in-frame cost for um, monthly lorlatinib and recognizing that, yes, it does have an FDA label. Um, in these, in, given its efficacy as the only agent to have um, sense, uh, efficacy after progression on a second-generation inhibitor, um, we did feel that this was worth putting in our pathways, despite the cost, and so it was adopted. And so with that, wanted to give you some sense with those cases of how we make decisions, what, what um, data we're putting in front of folks, and then discussion. You know, how do we integrate efficacy and safety data, indications and cost utility of novel therapies? We've shown you kind of how we do it. I want to talk a little bit about the process as a whole. So we have a pre-meeting where we bring in, we, we have a committee that includes um, a pathways medical director for each disease, um, each disease center. So one for thoracic, one for GI, one for GYN. And they are the primary drivers of, of getting, herding the cats, getting the doctors together. So we, we meet with the Pathways Medical Director specifically for that disease, along with a pharmacist who's expert in that specific disease, members from our Pathways team, and our data analyst who brings together all of the usage and on and off pathway data and other data that we have um, to the meeting so that we can look at what our docs have been doing, um, what they haven't when they've gone off pathway and why, to help determine are there gaps in the pathway? Are there things that, wow, we're off pathway a lot in this one specific branch that maybe that's a signal that we need to revisit that branch. And we set an agenda. Over the subsequent time before the meeting, we generate the slides that look much like what you've just seen, um, and we disseminate those amongst all potential participants in the meeting, including not just our disease center experts at our main campus, but inviting all of our community physicians to participate because we recognize that they have a lot of real-world experience to help to enhance our decision-making. In the review meeting... We, we make sure we start with conflicts of interest uh, and, and that anybody who has conflicts recuse themselves from any significant um, discussions about a specific item. We recognize that we're going to be recording these and developing minutes, and, 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 and they should proceed knowing that because we want to make both the recordings and the minutes available to our current and future customers for them to be able to understand 
Dave, how did you decide on this? Why didn't, how come, how come you didn't use Dervalumab in first-line small cell? And we can be able to point to this and say, here's why. Um, to be able to uh, address the kinds of data that you saw, efficacy, toxicity, cost, and what's the label? Is, is this an FDA-approved indication or not? Or if it's not, is it on a major compendium? NCCN, ASCO, basically to give our customers some confidence that, wow, if I follow this recommendation, am I going to get this drug paid for? Um, we come to some consensus based on all of the evidence that we've seen. And then we talk about where and how this is going to fit. Is this going to be the new primary recommendation? Is this an alternative that will be in certain situations? For instance, when we thought we, we, one of the things that was on our agenda on Thursday was thinking about ROS1 um, and the recent uh, intractinib approval. And where does that fit in? Should we still be using crizotinib? Should we be using entrectinib? And ultimately recognize that, we're, yes, we're going to adopt entrectinib for those patients with CNS metastases because it has better CNS penetration. So wanting to think very granularly about when medicines fit for certain populations, and that's important. It's important for us to decide that. It's an, an important education point that, you know, that the community may not be aware of, the limited CNS penetration of crizotinib and the superior penetration of entrectinib. Um, Post-review. We get the gang back together again to review the changes, make sure that they, they are the right changes and the right dose and schedule, um, and they appear in the platform the way we want them to. Um, we develop risks of therapy together with the doc and the pharmacist because every, every treatment recommendation in our pathways comes with side effects for that specific regimen, not for each individual drug within that regimen, so that it can generate a consent form um, specific to the treatment as a whole, which is then easier to use with a patient for both education and consenting pay, um, purposes. Want to think about, are there any other notes that we need to tell? Are there any specific or concerning toxicities that we want to make people aware of? Whether it's, well, you know what, we think lorlatinib is right here, but we want you to look out for CNS side effects, because this one is, while it's not the most common side effect, it's one that's different. You know, we, we, we haven't seen this with a number of the other agents. We just want to make you aware so you can look out for it. And we develop minutes. This is the kind of data that we generate uh, we're able to generate on pathway rates by provider, and this happens to be last uh, uh, August's data from our thoracic group. And so we can see, um, you know, how many navigations did each um, user have, and where they on or off pathway. And when they're, you know, more frequently low, we can look into this, and we look case by case and say, you know, where did they go off pathway, and why? And is this an education thing that we need to address, or is this, wow, he just had a number of patients that were outside the box this month, because that happens, especially at a tertiary cancer center. Um, we're able to do a branch-by-branch -branch review. And so look, looking at this specifically, you know, at this particular node of the pathway, um, when were we on, when were we off? So this was um, second-line um, small cell lung cancer, extensive stage. Um, and recognizing that uh, there was some use of pembrolizumab. Um, it didn't, I'm sorry, it didn't show up here, but uh, this was pembrolizumab um, that accounted for the two off-pathway recommendations. Um, and this happened to be in that space where pembrolizumab had been approved, but it wasn't yet discussed in our pathways committee. It was discussed this past Thursday and was adopted, um, but the usage of it prior to that was considered off-pathway, but was considered completely reasonable, um, and so no need for education there. And so, 
you know, lessons that we've learned, you know, as we think about the primacy of process. First is that it takes a village, that pathways of, of, of any stripe should not be something that, that one or two people develop sitting in a, in a, in a closed uh, door, uh, closed room. That this is something that takes expertise from so many different levels. Many doctors, pharmacists, um, our pathways team, um, thinking about cost, bringing this all together in a way that can really um, memorialize the best care that we can give to patients. Clear skies, that is, wanting to be transparent wherever we can be, transparent about our conflicts of interest, transparent about who's on the committee, transparent in terms of what kind of data we're putting in front of them, and transparent about what, we've, what decisions we've made to our users so that there's a clear understanding of how we got to this point. The ties that bind, that as we think about developing pathways, um, for us, programmatically, our pathways team has been the tie that binds from disease to disease, and recognizing that obviously the discussions are different in every type of disease, but want to make sure that the process that we use um, in terms of meeting and cadence, in terms of the kind of data that we put in front of our doctors, um, in terms of the language that we use is similar from disease to disease. And finally, recognizing the limitation of cost data, that the fact that we're just putting drug costs up and not total cost of care, not patient out-of-pocket expenses, we recognize that all those things are important. And I would love to have that information, but I don't have that available to me as yet, though we're certainly working on it. But running short of that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to put something up. And so at least by putting drug costs up, it's a way to think about cost, still in a meaningful way. And it's helped to, to develop a mindset in our physicians at Dana-Farber that cost matters, that we need to be thinking about um, th what this, what this um, impacts to the healthcare system and to our patients. And so while it's not the perfect data, it's important data, it's transparent data from a trusted source, and allows us to at least have some discussions about value. Behind the curtain, so to make this all work, it's not just about the committees that we put together, it's not just about the decisions we make, but it's also about the platform that we're trying to develop. That one equals one equals one refers, yeah, I'm using this to talk about our data model. That we've developed what we hope is a robust data model so that every time you click about a characteristic on a patient in our pathway, that's giving us granular information that's lying behind every one of those nodes. And we've worked really hard to make sure that where appropriate, nodes mean that, you know, things mean the same thing in a pancreatic cancer pathway as they mean in a lung cancer pathway as they mean in a, in a colon cancer pathway. In terms of counting the zeros and ones, being able to use that data model to get data back to our clinicians in a meaningful way. And the Phillips team will attest to this because it has been both the bane of their existence, but one of the real highlights of the tool is that we've demanded that it be a self-authoring platform. That is, once they've created it, when we want to make changes, we don't have to constantly go back to the development team and say, this is what we want, build it, is it right? And, and, and spend so much time going back and forth that the, the platform is such that we at Dana-Farber can then make those changes and put them into practice. Or a subsequent customer, should they choose to, can make their own changes and put it into practice without having to go back and forth um, with numbers of iterations of stuff. Finally, wanted to, to talk about snapshots of how we think about genomics within our Pathways platform. Um, 
some, one, of the, one of the great challenges in shopping these days is finding genes that fit. And so in this case, thinking about genes that fit from a genomic standpoint, right? So what you see, so we look at EGFR within the lung cancer pathway, and we recognize that genotype matters, and we've created multiple categories because they drive to different decisions, they drive to different trials. Um, but wanting to, at least in terms of what the clinician sees, make it as easy to digest as possible and render as few clicks as possible. And so they're able to click on the one that is appropriate for the patient in front of them. But behind all of that is a more robust data model um, for that, that is capturing each individual thing and driving forward. But also, by, because the data model is like this, we are able to set it up such that we can import discrete data elements like genomics from, um, from an EMR or from a genomic platform and bring this in so that ultimately we'll be able to auto-navigate for this and give us granular data back. So by putting it in this way, um, on the back end, we're able to capture very granular stuff. On the front end, if someone is still clicking through stuff, it's as easy as possible for them to do so. Want to think forward about where we are now, where I think we're going to be a year or so from now. So ALK is the perfect example of that. Um, for ALK right now, ALK positive means a rearrangement, a fusion. Um, most often with EML4, and that gets you into the ALK-positive category. And that's all that we've cared about um, heretofore. ALK-positive, and you get your first-generation inhibitor, and then you're off to the races. Where I think we're going to be ultimately is when someone progresses on first-line therapy, we're going to be testing for the mechanism of resistance. Um, we're going to be capturing that, and I, I, and I suspect that we're going to be driving to different therapies depending on what resistance mutation you have. I suspect, based on early data so far, that some of these are going to say, yes, lorlatinib has improved sensitivity with some of these mutations, but not all of them. It may be that brigatinib is better for one of these mutations, even though it's another second-generation inhibitor. It's just particularly good for this one mutation. And so I think that this is going to be where we are, and that's very similar to where we are in our pathway platform right now for CML, that one progresses on imatinib, and then we're encouraging genomic analysis, and depending on the specific mutation, that it drives forward to, yes, in, this, in the setting of a Y253H, dasatinib or basutinib are reasonable, and you should think about specific toxicities to help drive your decision-making, but you shouldn't use nilotinib because that's been associated with resistance with these specific mutations. Um, and so I think that's where we're going to wind up. This is where we are with CML. And again, just like with EGFR, we're capturing each of these individually in the data model on the back end um, so that we're able to, we'll be able to import these from EMR and we'll be able to report data back granularly across each mutation. How many of them are we seeing for each one? And then what's used with each one and how, what happens? So what's the value of incorporating genomics into pathways? We want to be able to provide recommendations for appropriate targeted therapy, as well as to signal avoidance of therapies that are associated with resistance. We want to be able to facilitate of, importation of genomics to help aut drive auto-navigation. We want to be able to recommend appropriate clinical trial opportunities. And we want to allow institutional insight into the numbers of patients seen with each specific mutation, whether that's clinical trials, whether that's drug forecasting. When we talk about biomarkers, it's not just genomics. You know, that we look at some of the other biomarkers that are out there and recognize the challenges of those as well. You know, PDL1 has been one that's presented a number of different challenges, recognizing that there are different scoring systems um, that in one tumor, like non-small cell lung cancer, we care about PDL1 expression. We care about is it greater than 50% in some settings? We care about whether it's greater than 1% in other settings. Um, 
In other diseases, it might be a CPS score, as in gastroesophageal um, carcinoma. Um, we recognize that there are different assays. Are you using the 22C3 antibody with the DACO kit? Are you using Ventana? And, and is, can, we, can we feel a certain extent of equivalence amongst these? Um, how, when, if ever, do we want to get granular and say, this is the test you should use? Or when can we be more test agnostic and say, you know, you can use any of these um, and, and, and we'll feel reasonably confident across all of them? And we talked already about the different cutoffs from disease to disease or even within the same disease. Other challenges, you know, when we think about some mutations, um, like BRCA, you know, thinking about when do we care about germline versus somatic, or both? Um, how do we define positivity with some complex things like HER2 positivity? You know, when do we care uh, about HER2 mutations versus amplification? And then within, you know, Amplication slash overexpression. You know, how do we educate about you know what what counts from an immunocystic chemistry versus fish testing? Um, and how do we how do we make sure that that all of that information is is uh, reproducible and disseminated? And then you know within genomics more broadly, when do we care about tissue versus plasma-based testing? Are there important lines to draw, or at least suggestions to give? And so finally, you know, I want to think about clearing a path in lung cancer. One of the things that we're trying to do or that we encourage others to do, we want to be able to provide leadership and expertise, you know, with all pathways. And we think that these should be designed by experts who are actively seeing patients and so who have boots on the ground as well as, you know, boots in the clinic um, and in the lab. It's important to listen to the troops, and that is to say listen to the users of your pathways, um, both from the community setting as well as the academic setting, because they have a lot to share, a lot to share about um, content, a lot to share about what works in the pathways and what doesn't, um, and how you can make the content more digestible. Wanting to provide an electronic roadmap. It's not enough to give people a map anymore, because especially with, 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 with oncology, the maps are changing so often. The roads are changing, and so we need something that can adapt literally month to month, if not week to week. Um, and, and as discussed earlier, we need a uniform process about how these maps are made um, so that you know, what we do in each disease is relatively similar, um, so that the language we use is relatively similar, and that there's a transparency to all of it. And finally, just wanted to, 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 to talk about the fact that healthcare is at top of mind in so many ways um, and will be one of the great challenges of our time as we think about how do we meaningfully care for ourselves and each other and how do we do so in a way that is feasible and doesn't break the bank. And I think Pathways tries to be at least an important voice in all of this. And I'm thankful that to all, each of you who are here for that very reason. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, by means of acknowledgement, these are the, uh, some of the main people at our institution and at Phillips who have helped to drive the Pathways platform and the Pathways program. And this really is an evidence of it does genuinely take a village. Um, and it has involved so many more people than those listed on the screen. So with that, happy to take any questions. Thank you. Any questions from the audience? A couple of microphones. Got it. Okay, I think Fair we're enough. good. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. Yeah. Thank you.